Thank you for joining us at the First Baptist Church of Coleraine, Massachusetts, as Pastor Jim Rennie continues to faithfully challenge and encourage us in the Word. And it is our prayer that this message will encourage the believer and bring the unbeliever closer to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn in our Bibles again to chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. There should be one in the pew if you didn't bring one. You'll find that on page 1915. I'm going to read about the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. May God give us understanding of his word. Amen. Entitled this message, the Church in Pergamum told to repent or else. I think we've got a bit of an echo now. Let's turn it down a bit. Thank you. So today we'll learn about the letter addressed to the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was a very wealthy city, some 60 miles north of Smyrna, what we learned about last week, 15 miles from the Aegean Sea. Church in Pergamum was surrounded by many pagan temples and idol worshippers of false gods and also the Roman emperors. Many Roman emperors were worshipped as well. There were many temples dedicated to Roman emperors where people worshipped them, whether past or still alive. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for each one of us who is able to be here this morning, and we just pray that our ears would be open. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Speak, Lord, we pray, and speak to us. May we apply these things practically in our life and give us understanding of this word, these passages in Scripture, and may we learn a lot that we've never known before. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Jesus told the Apostle John he was uh, exiled on the island of Patmos. He was in his late 90s by now. The only one left, all the other disciples had been executed for their faith. And he's on Patmos and Jesus appeared to him and told him to write to the churches. There were seven churches in that area of Asia Minor, which is now in Western Turkey. And he's addressing the church in Pergamum. And he describes himself as Jesus as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and is God. He has the ultimate power and authority. The Bible is also the word of God because it's inspired. The only book, and there's 66 books in the Bible, as you probably know, but the only book that is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. Yes, it was different men that wrote down these books, but it was God that inspired their thoughts to write down his thoughts, not their thoughts. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, and it has the power to transform lives. Have you experienced that? Your life has been transformed by the Word of God. That's the only way it can be transformed. Amen? Through the Word of God, by receiving the Word. Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is what it says about the Word of God. It's alive. It's not a dead book. It's alive and it's active. It has power. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. We say we, when we read the Bible, no, the Bible reads us. Amen. It reads us. Shows us what we're really like. Jesus knew the struggles that were going on in that church in Pergamum. They were slap bang in the middle of the devil's territory, where the population was antagonistic towards those Christians. So, in the midst of all those false religions, you can imagine how difficult it must have been for those believers to worship the Lord, and there's only one true Lord, Jesus, without being victimized. And they were victimized. In fact, because some of them refused to deny their faith in Christ, just like so many others that have been executed for their faith in Christ, refusing to deny their faith in Jesus, many were put to death only one here is mentioned, Antipas. At first, Jesus commands the church. He commends the church for remaining faithful. That is a good thing. That's what we should be doing, amen? We should be remaining faithful to the Lord. But then he rebukes them. He rebukes some of them because they were committing Spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. I'll explain what that means shortly. He said, I have a few things against 
in you, and he says, some, not all, he said, some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Some, it says, in the church, in Pergamum, followed the teaching of Balaam. Let's explain what that means. What is the teaching of Balaam? In the Old Testament, we learn that Balak was a king of the Moabites during the Israelites' journey to the Promised Land. How long were they in the desert for? 40 years. King Balak had witnessed the Israelites' destruction of the Amorites, another heathen nation. And the entire region of Moab was afraid that that would happen to them as well. And the Israelites were encamped in King Balak's territory, Moab territory. So what did he do? He decided to contact a prophet named Balaam. Now, Balaam is not a Jewish prophet. He's a Gentile prophet. Some say he was from Syria. Others say he was from Mesopotamia, which is in Africa. It doesn't really matter. Fact is, he wasn't an Israelite prophet. And he contacted, the king contacted Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites to destroy them. Long story short, you can read that in Numbers chapter 22. It's a very interesting story. But God told the prophet Balaam, because the Jews are God's chosen people, he told Balaam, the prophet, not to follow King Balak's command to curse Israel. And he didn't. Reluctantly, he didn't follow through. But because Balaam loved money, and the Bible says uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, Nothing wrong with money, but the love of it is the root of all evil. He advised the king that the most effective way to destroy and to weaken the people of Israel was through seduction. You know, if Satan doesn't come in one way, he'll come another way. If he doesn't come through the front door, he'll come through the back door. He's subtle, he's sneaking. How? were these Israelites supposed to be destroyed then? By using the Moabite women and the Midianite women to tempt and to seduce the Israelite men through sexual immorality. And also to partake in their pagan rituals and idol worship. That's exactly what happened. And those Israelites, I almost said ignorantites, the ones that committed fornication with the Moabite women and worshipped their false gods were judged by God. In fact, he was so angry. What? God angry? He's a God of love. Yes, he is. But he's also angry with the wicked every day. Righteous anger. He was so angry with those rebels that he destroyed, wait for it, 
24,000 of them. That's how many that indulged in sexual immorality with the Moabite and Midianite women and started worshipping their false idols. So what is the teaching of Balaam that Jesus is talking about? I've just explained it. It's the attitude that treats sins as no big deal. No big deal. In practical terms, the teaching uh, or doctrine, which is the same thing, doctrine is teaching, of Balaam is the view that Christians can or even should compromise their convictions for the sake of popularity, money, like Balaam, sexual gratification, or personal gain, like Balaam who was willing to use his prophetic gifts, his talents, for illicit purposes. So now you know what the teaching of Balaam is. You'll take the test later. So there's a warning for Christians here. Because the church, and we're not talking about a building, the church is the body of Christ, as you know, if you've been here long enough. The church is the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. And the church of Christ should be pure. The bride of Christ should be pure and devoted 100% to Jesus Christ. Amen? Of course, Christians, we can't and we, we shouldn't. Jesus certainly didn't. Avoid associating with Unbelievers, it's impossible. You know, unless you go live in a cave somewhere like a hermit. We're not meant to do that. We're not to be cloistered away like some monk or nun. Jesus wasn't. He was out amongst them. But we are obligated to stand up for what's true, for what's righteous and good, and to live to a higher standard of our calling in Christ Jesus, whether it's popular or not, which it isn't, amen? It's really not. In First John, same guy who was on the island of Patmos, he wrote five letters. His, this is what he said in one of them, his first letter, chapter 5, 21. He says, little children. He's not talking about that age group. He's talking about us. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. What does he mean? Anything that comes before the Lord, anything or anyone that comes before the Lord is an idol. He has to come first. Amen? He has to come first. And he's also said in verse 15, likewise, you also, so that was the teaching of Balaam, that was wrong, that they were doing, some of them, not all of them. Also, they were doing this, what? Likewise, you also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've already covered this before. So it was a common thing going on in the, in the churches there. Let me just uh, recap. Some of you are hearing this for the first time. Some of you may not have heard the message on what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is. Some of you have got a bad memory. 
like me. So let's just remind one another what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is. In addition to falling into the sins of Balaam, which we've just covered, some members of the church in Pergamon followed the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans taught a doctrine of lawlessness. That meant being bound by no moral restrictions. That's what's happening in the world today. That's what we would be doing if we hadn't have been transformed by the word of God. Not being bound by any moral restriction at all, including sexual sins or idolatry. That's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Also, they taught that the clergy, or rather the pastor, the minister, the shepherd, the elder, should rule the people in the churches. One person, one head honcho. This strongly contradicts the biblical role of the pastor, who is supposed to be a shepherd of the flock. Amen? who tries, who tries, don't always do everything perfectly because we, never, we won't be perfect until we meet the Lord, who tries to follow the example of the chief shepherd. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus. He's the chief shepherd, amen? That's where it is. So, having been rebuked by the church in Pergamum, Jesus tells them what they needed to do. He just doesn't rebuke them and say, okay, you're on your own. He tells them what they've got to do in order to put things right. So what does he say? He says, repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. Or else, that's the title of this message, the church in Pergamum told to repent or else. Repent, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church needed to deal with those people, some of those people within the fellowship in Pergamum, who preferred to follow the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. They preferred to do that. They weren't putting Jesus first. And if they didn't, they would have to suffer the consequences. And the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. There's that word again. He doesn't tolerate false teaching or immorality in the church. He doesn't. And he exhorts them to say, uh, whoever has ears, I assume they all had ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the one who is victorious, I will give some Again, not all, because just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than going, 
you know, being a, a taco makes you a Taco Bell or whatever. <laughs> does, it, does it make you a hamburger because you go to McDonald's, right? He says, some of them. Some I'm going to give the hidden manna. He, Jesus says, to listen, to accept and obey what he says. And then some, not all of them, some will be rewarded. He would give them the hidden manna. What on earth is the hidden manna, you ask me? I hear you thinking about that. What is the hidden manna? What on earth is he talking about? Anyway, there's different interpretations. And nobody really knows. You know, if I don't know, I'm going to tell you. And there's so many think that they do. And by the way... Your Bible notes are not inspired by God. Remember that. Your Bible notes are not inspired by God. It's just man's thoughts. And they may be very clever, and they may be right, but they may be wrong. Different views on the meaning of the hidden manner. But it's likely this is a symbolic because the book of Revelation is full of symbols. It's full of symbolic meanings. Doesn't alter the fact that it's true. Doesn't alter the fact that it's real. It's symbolic. It's a symbolic picture. And the hidden manna is more likely than not a symbolic picture of Jesus Christ himself. The hidden manna. You see, we've never met Jesus, have we? Some of you may have done. I'd like to meet you. What does he look like? You tell me. A white Anglo-Saxon president with red hair. That's the, that's the pictures I grew up with. Now, I'm sure he doesn't look like that at all. He's hidden, isn't he? He's hidden. We can't see him, but we can't see him now, but one day we will. Amen. Some, some sooner than others. Could be me. I might be the one next. We don't know. But one day we'll see him. What a day that will be. That's what he looks like. Awesome. Actually, we'll be probably down on our, down at his feet. Just as the heavenly food in the Old Testament, it was called manna. In the Hebrew, it says, that means, what is it? <laughs> what is it? The Old Testament. God provided manna to feed the Israelites in the desert for 40 years. And they griped about that because they were sick of eating that. They had it fried one day and boiled the next and sautéed the next day. And he said, we want meat. They said, okay, I'll give you meat. Boom. He gives them a load of quail. So many, almost up to, up to their eyeballs in quail. They're complaining about the quail then. Yeah, always griping they were, always griping. And there was only a few who actually got into the promised land. The rest of them were taken out. Ungrateful. So that, just like the manna in the desert, it sustained and it strengthened the Israelites, in their journey to the promised land, when they're in the desert for 40 years, so Jesus 
he would strengthen the church spiritually and help them walk through this life just like he will with us. He's going to take us by the hand, he's going to help us, and he's going to walk us into the promised land. This is not the promised land, right? This is not, the, this is not our home. We're just passing through. Now, ju- Jesus is the manna from heaven, able to provide the spiritual sustenance that we need. Listen to what he says about himself. This is how he describes himself, amongst other things. In John chapter 6, this is what he said. He says, I am, and when that is mentioned, he's declaring himself to be God. I am the bread of life. We're talking about food here, spiritual sustenance. And he's talking to the Jews. His disciples are all Jews, every one of them. He says, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died physically, right? But here is the bread that comes down from heaven. Who's he talking about? Himself. Which anyone may eat and not die. Anyone. Who's anyone? Anyone. Everyone. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. He's not talking about carnivores here. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's talking about dying on the cross, his body that died on the cross. This is the bread that came down from heaven. He's referring to himself. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Who did? God. But truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the bread. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Talking about spiritual life. Final verse, half of it anyway. Let's conclude. He said, I will also give that person, so he deals with us as individuals, and salvation is between you and the Lord, nobody else. I will also give that person That means the one who is victorious, because he talks about that, doesn't he? Being victorious in in the beginning of verse 17, to the one who is victorious. He's going to give the hidden manna, but what else is he going to give? He said to that person who's victorious, I'm going to give a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one 
who receives it. Again, there's so many different views and opinions of what the white stone is and what it means. We don't really know. We can only speculate. But those who endure to the end, despite the trials and the hardships and the tribulations that were going on in that church because of the, the persecution and the, the victimization of the church by those pagans, those that are faithful to the end, despite all those trials and tribulations, that have successfully resisted the power and the temptations of this world will be victorious. They'll be on the winning side. They'll finish the race. We're in a race. They'll cross the line as winners. That's what a winner is. A winner is victorious. Amen? So he says, basically, just hang in there till the end, and I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you a white stone. Now, we don't know what the white stone is, but if they remain faithful, he was going to give them this white stone with a name on it that nobody else knew. Nobody can know for certain what the name on the white stone is. Nobody can know that, all right? Only God can know that. Or what the honor of that stone means, because when you receive a gift from Jesus, it's an honor, right? We don't know what the honor means, the white stone really means. However, in ancient times, there was a custom of giving the winners, those that were victorious in the athletic competitions, we talked about this last week, about the crown that they received, the laurel wreath. Those that were the winners in those athletic competitions, there's only one winner in each competition, they were given, guess what? A white stone. This is an actual fact. They were given a white stone inscribed with their name on it. Their name. Their name. So these white stones that were given, it was like a token that allowed only those winners, only those that were victorious, to enter into the awards celebrations after the games were over. Now likewise, for certain, that when believers, when we get to heaven, when we finally get to heaven, when we finally cross the line, there's going to be a great celebration in our honor when we receive from Jesus our reward for being faithful to him. So much that we don't know, but it'll all be revealed soon enough before we know it. Let us close in a word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this interesting study in the life of those Christians in Pergamum and also for the ones that were there. Some of them uh, were indulging in sexual immorality and uh, 
following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Obviously, um, that was completely wrong, and any form of idol worship is a sin because you must come first and uh, you judge those people in Israel for their spiritual adultery. And they did know better because they were your chosen people, but just like us, you know, we know better, but we still choose to disobey you. But thank be to God, you've told them in the church to repent and repentance is to change our minds and not just change our mind, but change our attitude and change our ways. You don't really uh, repent unless you completely forsake a specific sin that we keep returning back to and keep on doing. That's not true repentance. True repentance is forsaking it. But thank be to God that uh, you promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteous. Help us to always put you first and uh, to be on the victory side and to have fullness of joy because when we choose to disobey, then uh, we don't have that joy in our hearts that we ought to, that you want for us. You want to give us fullness of joy. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And only then we'll be completely filled and healed from uh, the curse of sin. When we see you face to face, see you what, what you actually look like. And in the meantime, help us as we go about our daily life in this world to remember that if we remain faithful, that you will give us a reward. And uh, we thank you that you are with us and you are able to help us to remain faithful. But we need to do our part as well, by your grace. There may be somebody listening to this message. You've never truly been saved. You've never repented of your sin. You've heard about Jesus, yes, but you don't really know the reason he died on a cross. Why did he have to die on a cross? Well, he died for you. You're a sinner. Things that you've done wrong. Things that you've thought about doing wrong. Jesus said if you commit sin in your heart, it's just as bad as doing it physically. He knows the motives in our heart. He knows every thought. So we're sinners. This is why we do things wrong. And we needed a savior and there he was. He came down to this sin sick world. He suffered and died on that cross in your place. So you wouldn't have to be punished by a holy, 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 angry God who hates sin, can't abide it. He's too pure and righteous even to look upon sin. And he had to turn his face away from his son, his only begotten son, Jesus, who became sin for us. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died for you because he loves you. He did that, he suffered in your place. And if you believe that he did that in your heart, that he 
was buried and that he rose again from the dead, if you truly believe that, in your heart and you confess it with the mouth, your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And the promise in the word of God says that for those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you need to call upon his name, the most powerful name in the universe, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. I don't want to end up in a lost eternity separated from you. I believe and now I receive you as my personal savior. And if you have done that, get into a church where they teach and preach the word of God, read your Bible every day and uh, be faithful. Like he was faithful to die in your place. In Jesus name we pray, amen. Thank you again for tuning in. You can find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you find podcasts. We'd love for you to join us at the First Baptist Church in Coleraine for Sunday morning worship at 11 a.m. We are located at 81 Foundry Village Road, Coleraine, Massachusetts. If you have any questions or inquiries, please feel free to call the church at 413-624-8886. Hope to see you soon. God bless.